The gospel reading comes from Luke chapter 24. That very day, the two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, we ask and we recognize uh, your Holy Spirit is among us, and we rejoice in that. There is no joy in the resurrection of Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit, and so we thank you. But Father, we also are deeply aware that our faith is weak. In the best of times, it is weak. And sometimes it barely hangs on. And we do not have the strength in ourselves to hold us. And we do not have the strength in ourselves even to truly confess that creed. We need your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we ask that you would do in us what you did in those two people on the road to Emmaus, that you would give us spiritual sight that we may see Jesus. 
We ask boldly for that, knowing that it's a gift you love to give, so give it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, be seated. Um, so one of the funny things about uh, Easter, the stories of Easter, the stories of the first Easter, the Sunday. So obviously there's the big miracle that Jesus rises from the dead, and that's a big audacious claim, and it's one that Christians make unreservedly, boldly, audaciously, that Jesus was dead in the way that all of us will one day be dead, and that Jesus uh, came back to life uh, in a way that none of us have ever seen, none of us can really imagine outside the context of what God did for Christ. It's a big audacious claim. But there's another thing that happens, another miracle that happens on all the accounts of that first Easter. And it's this, it's that um, disciples of Jesus, people who were close to Jesus, begin the day absolutely with no paradigm that he might actually rise again. There is no paradigm, there's no expectation that Jesus is in fact going to rise from the dead. And even when they hear of it, they typically do not believe him. They do not believe that it has actually occurred. You can see that in a bunch of accounts. If you were uh, with us this morning, you uh, saw uh, something of that in Mary Magdalene, and it's more when Mary Magdalene goes to the other disciples and says, hey, I've seen the Lord, and they don't believe her. But you can see it in our reading, can't you? In these two people who are walking away from Jerusalem, and they don't believe. And the miracle, what's the miracle that I'm talking about? The miracle is that Jesus chases them down. And at the beginning, they don't believe at all. And at the end, they do. And I want to trace that miracle. The reason why is that Jesus has re been repeating this miracle for 2,000 years, which is, explains why you and I are talking about this today. For 2,000 years, people in every single generation have said, Christ is risen. But what they have, and, they have and when people hear that, at first they kind of go, I'm not sure that that can possibly be true. I can't imagine how that can possibly be true. Surely that cannot be true. But then, remarkably, Jesus works, Jesus does something in people and brings them to a place where they find that their heart is burning like these people on the road to Emmaus, and they find themselves saying, yes, I have seen the Lord. Maybe not with my eyes, maybe not physically, but I have nevertheless seen the Lord. And they then pass the word to the next generation, and for 2,000 years, there's been an unbroken succession of that, and it brings us to this day. How does that miracle take place? How does Jesus bring people from skepticism and doubt. Are you there? How does Jesus bring, them, bring us from there to faith? Come with me. Take a look at the story, okay? Now, you've you got to imagine the story and, and, and enter into the story with these two people, uh, Cleopas and we don't know who the other person is. Could have been their, his wife. We're not sure. But these two people are walking away from Jerusalem, and they are very convinced, convinced that God has failed them. Um, and maybe you can identify with that. I don't know. Can I identify with the feeling that maybe God has failed you? Well, then these are your people. And these two people have suffered a terrible kind of hellish trauma. We know that they were followers of Jesus. And we know that they are fleeing Jerusalem. And they assuredly had really good reason for running. They are bolting out of the city and out of Jerusalem. They want to get as far away from it as they can. Why? Well, verse 21 tells us something of why. They had hoped previously that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel. 
And from that, we can reconstruct just a little bit. Sometime before this, maybe it was months, maybe it was years, but they had, they had heard Jesus teach. They had come into contact with Jesus. They weren't one of the 12, but they were part of the greater uh, group that followed Jesus. And they had put their trust in Jesus. They had put their hope in Jesus. They had cashed in all their chips that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And when they did that, it came with certain expectations, big expectations, they expected that Jesus would be the Messiah that stops all the bad stuff. The really bad stuff, like Roman oppression. When they trusted Jesus, they trusted that he was going to be the one to end that. And religious corruption. When they trusted Jesus, they trusted that he was going to be the one to end all that. And they trusted that this was going to be the one that was going to make the world new. And their hopes and expectations for the Messiah and for Jesus were just at fever pitch. Fever pitch. And then Jesus got arrested. That wasn't part of the plan. Not their plan. And then Jesus got put on trial. And then Jesus got condemned. And then they watched as Jesus was put up upon a cross. And then Jesus died. And none of that was part of the plan. And in those uh, 12 or 14 hours, whatever it was, from Jesus' arrest to his death, their world died. Their world died. And they didn't have anybody that they could trust in that moment, you know? I mean, obviously they couldn't trust the Romans. They already knew that. But they couldn't trust the religious leaders either because their own religious leaders had participated in Jesus' death. But not only could they not trust those, they already knew that really, but they couldn't even trust the followers of Jesus because it had been an inside job. Judas, one of the twelve, had betrayed him. And even Peter had denied him. And almost everybody, except for a few, had abandoned him. Who do you trust, you know? And their world died. Some of us have had a bad year. Really bad year. And, and some of us know exactly what that darkness is like. Do you know what that darkness is like? And where was God for them in that moment? I mean, where was God? Where were where was God's promises? Man, these are the people that had been all in. Where was God's promises for them? So, of course they left Jerusalem. They want to get as far away as they can. They left Jerusalem in fear and in despair because God had defaulted on all of his promises and there's no one left to trust. But here we need to pause. And look back at the story, because here's the thing. This is where we can begin to see how something called spiritual blindness works. And that's a, that's a little bit of a sharp phrase, but let me explain. Do you notice how these two people, when they're talking with Jesus, they, they ignore or they discount or they suppress part of the story. They don't tell the whole story. They sort of sideline part of it. And in particular, do you notice in the story how they don't believe the women? Did you catch that? Take a look at verse 22. So, so they're talking to Jesus. Jesus is fresh out of the tomb. He pops along. He's like, hey, guys, what you talking about? And for some reason, they don't recognize Jesus. And so they start talking to Jesus about Jesus and what had happened to Jesus. And, 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 and they start talking about how all their hopes are just utterly dashed. But then in verse 22, they sort of hint at something. They say, basically, I'm paraphrasing. They're like, 
yeah, all this terrible stuff happened. And, and then this morning, it was odd. So uh, some of the women, I roll, went to the tomb, and they said that it was empty, and that angels told them that Jesus had risen from the dead, but blah, blah, blah. And, and then some of us went there, and yeah, check it out. It was corroborated what they said, but nobody believes them. Did you catch that? Now, what you need to see is that these people had already heard, already this day, about Jesus' resurrection, but they suppressed it. They refused to believe it. They refused to believe, in particular, the women. And it's actually worse than that, because if you back up in the Gospel of Luke, which is where this excerpt comes from, we find out that Jesus himself, in the weeks before this, had told them a plan. And he says, this is what is going to happen. He told them this several times. He says, listen, we're going to go to Jerusalem. It's not going to go well. They're going to arrest me. They're going to condemn me. They're going to kill me. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. That's the plan, team. He said that a few times. And then they got to Jerusalem, and check it out. It all happened. And then after it happened, just as Jesus said, uh, the women found an empty tomb. But in spite of all of that, their hearts default to fear and despair and to the conclusion that God had failed. It's called spiritual blindness. And look how Jesus describes it. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart, note that, to believe all that the prophets, meaning the scriptures, have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, Jesus, does Jesus sound a little harsh there? Kind of expecting to be a little nicer. Um, well, he's not being harsh, but he is, he's diagnosing. And when you diagnose, I, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to mince your words. You're supposed to be clear. So that's what he's doing. And the problem, according to Jesus, it's a problem of the heart. It's not simply that they need more information. It's that they cannot see what it is that is right in front of them. They've heard the prophets, that is to say, the scriptures. They've heard Jesus in the weeks previous. They've heard the women's testimony that morning, but nevertheless, they can't see it. And they can't see those things, and of course, they can't literally see Jesus. But the issue is that their heart defaults to doubt in spite of compelling evidence, and that is called spiritual blindness. And it's something that impacts all of us. It describes all of us. In fact, in fact, I, I don't, this is, I probably shouldn't do this, but if you for like a few seconds, imagine your political opponent, like your cultural opponent in this world, right? Folks that voted for the other team, whichever one, you know, make the adjustment. Very often, it, when we think about the different tribes in our time, um, especially political tribes, one tribe will look at the other and say, I, I cannot believe that despite the fact that you're confronted with uh, absolutely overwhelming, compelling evidence, you still refuse to believe my point of view. A and the other team is saying exactly the same to whatever team you're on. We look at each other and we're amazed that we are uncompelled by compelling evidence. Now, I'm going to leave that aside, but just as a kind of illustration, the Bible says there's something deeper and even realer going on. That there is a spiritual version of this that is deep within all of us. That just like a magnet attracts iron, so our hearts attract doubt even when we are surrounded by compelling reason to trust God. And why is that? Well, like Jesus says, my heart is slow to believe. But differently, I have a 
congenital heart problem, a spiritual heart problem, and I am prone to spiritual blindness. I can see it in me. Can you see it in you? So, how does Jesus deal with it? Well, how, in other words, how does Jesus give spiritual sight? Well, let me point out three things that Jesus does to give spiritual sight. The first is Jesus himself shows up. Um, I love this story for all sorts of reasons, but one of the reasons I love this story is that Jesus kind of pops along and pretends. Did you ever think about Jesus pretending? Jesus pops along and pretends. First of all, he pretends that he doesn't know what's, what had just happened, you know, to him. Um, and so he's like, hey, what are you talking about? Oh, really? That happened to Jerusalem? And they're like, oh, yeah, boy, where have you been? And he goes, well, fill me in, you know. Um, and, and, and then they chat and chat for well, hours, I don't know. And then they get to the place, and he still acts like he's going on, despite the fact that he's planning to go anyways. But in the midst of this kind of odd little pretending, there's a serious edge. And part of the serious edge is this. Uh, blind people typically do not heal themselves. And neither do spiritually blind people. The only way that these people are going to overcome their spiritual blindness is if Jesus himself chases them down and shows them their spiritual blindness. Jesus himself has to intervene. And that's why today Easter is not about some sort of strategy that I can tell you to say, hey, listen, you can overcome your skepticism and doubt if you follow these three tips. That's because that would imply that you can do it. And you can't. And neither can I. Jesus has to chase us down. And I, can I be so bold as to say right now, today, Jesus is chasing you? And if that frightens you a little bit, yeah, good. But let me also say it should delight you. The only way that we'll ever see rightly is if Jesus really is, in fact, risen from the dead. And if he's chasing us down. Friends, the good news is that Jesus is, in fact, alive. Even if we can't see him, he is alive. And we may doubt today, these people doubted, but that didn't make Jesus unalive then. It didn't make him not real then. It doesn't make Jesus not real now. And that means that Jesus today can meet you and me in the midst of our doubts. Jesus isn't sitting there waiting, saying, hey, overcome your doubts and then come and talk to me. No, he's saying, I will meet you in the midst of your doubts. I will meet you in the midst of your spiritual blindness. And that brings us to the second way that Jesus overcomes uh, our spiritual blindness and gives us spiritual sight, and that is he shows us himself first in the scriptures. This is a bit of an odd thing. Take a look at verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus starts a Bible study, and he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, this is interesting because I sort of imagine Jesus popping around and saying, hey, check it out. It's me. Like, look at the holes. You know, check out the piercings. Like, it's me. Um, but that's not what he does. He does that in some other places, but he doesn't do that here. Jesus wants them to see him in the Bible before he see, they see him physically. Sometimes, sometimes I think, if only I could see Jesus, if only I was there, then I'd believe. Nothing in the Bible bears that out. Jesus wants these disciples to trust the scriptures more than they trust their own eyes. And so he eventually lets them see him physically, but first he wants them to see him scripturally. And that, by the way, is the pattern for all Christians. All Christians anticipate the day when we will see Jesus physically, but every Christian will only see him physically if we first see him scripturally. We've got to trust the word of God in the Bible. 
Now, I realize that even as I say that, it brings up a trouble because for some of us, the Bible is the epicenter of our doubt. Is that true for you? Well, friends, if that is the case, then let me say this. Remember that Jesus, one of the things he claims here is that Jesus himself is the, is the center point of the Bible. He's the thing that makes sense of everything else. And so if you find yourself struggling or doubting the Bible or full of questions and trouble with, it, with respect to the Bible, then what I want to encourage you to do is take all those questions and hold them right here and then focus your attention on Jesus himself. Read Jesus for yourself. Don't take somebody like me's word for it. Read him for yourself. Read the, the Gospels and then ask yourself, is Jesus somebody I can trust? I think you'll find that he is. And if, he, and if you find that he is, then you can take the questions that trouble you most about the Bible and, that, and ask, how does Jesus and his teachings and his death and his resurrection give clarity about these questions that trouble me? Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the one that ties up all the tension and the loose strings. Jesus is chasing us. He's chasing us down and bringing us to see him in his word. And then finally, the third thing, and this is the most mysterious, is that Jesus gives spiritual sight in the breaking of the bread. And I think that means this. We see Jesus most clearly when we see the magnitude of his grace for us. Um, let me show you why I say that. So in verse 30, um, they show up at Emmaus. Jesus pretends like he's going on. They say, no, 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 come on, be our guest. Jesus enters the house, but instead of being the guest, he turns out to be the host. Verse 30, he sits at the table, he takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives it to them. And it's in the moment when Jesus gives the bread that their eyes are opened. It's the giving the giving of a gift. And if you're steeped in the scriptures, that evokes all sorts of things. Because from the very beginning of the Bible, God has always fed his people. God likes to feed us. Do you know that? It's a thing. Garden of Eden, God feeds abundantly, and it's a sign of his grace. At the Passover, God says, people, I want you to be busy feasting tonight while I go out and do all the heavy lifting of gaining your liberty from slavery. And then later on, you get to Jesus, and Jesus is feeding people all over the place. And finally, he feeds them at the Last Supper, which we will remember in just a little bit. But in each case, the feeding of God's people is the sign of his grace. And here in this little town of Emmaus, the risen Jesus breaks bread to show that the climax of his grace is when his body was broken on the Friday before. And then he gives it to them just like God has always given his people bread. And it's as if Jesus is to say in the giving of the bread, friends, all God's promises are fulfilled. This morning you thought that they were all default, but they weren't. All the promises of God from the beginning of creation to the end have now been fulfilled in my death and in my resurrection. So take and eat. Take and eat and receive my grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Receive it down into your soul. Don't just agree mentally, but receive grace. And, the re and as they receive the bread, their eyes are opened for the first time. And then they know something has changed within their hearts. They say, did not our hearts burn within us? Remember the heart? It's where the spiritual blindness was resident. But as they heard Jesus, their hearts were transformed and they gained new ones. And now, with hearts that can trust Jesus, they get up and enjoy their run. 
They run all the way back to where they fled from. They run all the way back to Jerusalem and they break in the door and they say, we have seen the Lord. Friends, that is the miracle Jesus has been doing ever since. And that is the miracle Jesus wants to do within your soul. And whether you're a Christian today or you're someone who isn't sure or if you're someone who says, I'm quite confident I'm not, let me say this. Jesus Christ is walking beside you. And Jesus Christ is wondering about your doubts. And Jesus Christ is asking you about your pain. And Jesus Christ is reaching down into the despair of all those dark places where you're sure God has forgotten. And he is reaching down into all of them. And he said, come with me to my word, and I will show you the goodness of the God whom you cannot now see. And then he offers you bread the bread of his mercy and his grace. And that is the grace and mercy which will animate all of your eternity. So take and eat and receive and see. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.